Well, if you would, turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you have just joined us, though I don't think I see any new faces, if you've just joined us, we're walking through this book in depth. So Philippians chapter 2. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of getting sick of seeing all the pumpkin spice. How about you? A latte this, latte that. I thought I'd share some photos just to get us going this morning. Uh, pumpkin spice bologna. There you are. Did you see that one on the shelf? No, no. Here's another one. <clears throat> this is for, where's Robert? Robert, this is for you. Remington uh, buckshot with uh, pumpkin spice on it. So and you just, I guess the buck, you just got the, already the seasoning with it. Charmin, pumpkin spice. Yeah. <laughs> My wife's into this poopery spray. Have you seen this? You spray it before. No, no, no we won't go there. Uh, yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. And then this is the, my favorite, uh, Xanax for your seasonal anxiety, pumpkin spice. <laughs> oh, well, well that, that had nothing to do with the lesson. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, please. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 12. So then, my dear friends, grab a pumpkin latte. No. Just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, and note that he says, have always obeyed, since Acts chapter 16, since he's established this church, <clears throat> they have been faithful. He says, in my presence, but even more in my absence, as they have been, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. That is a loaded term, and that's what we're going to go through today. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> scholars are on two major camps, or there's two major views among the scholars, and whichever view you take determines how you interpret the rest of these verses here through verse 18. So uh, I was pulling out my hair a little bit this past week. Uh, I am going to land the plane, uh, and you may not agree, and that's okay. Uh, you'll find out you're wrong in heaven. Verse 13, for the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. In fact, in the Greek, God is emphatic. So it's, the verse starts with God, uh, but in, to smooth it out in the English, the Net Bible places God at the end. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights, or literally stars, in the world. By holding on to the word of life, which I take to be the gospel, so that on the day of Christ, I will have a reason to boast. Paul uses that term. It's used in the New Testament, I think, 48 times or so. Paul uses it 46 of the times in the New Testament, boasting. But it's not, it's not of arrogance. It's always of, of the things of the Lord. It says, for reason to boast that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad, and I rejoice together with all of you. And in the same way, you should be glad and rejoice together with me. This whole section goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27, where we had that command, remember, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. That is what's governing this whole section. And as we looked at last week with the the kenosis and the hypostatic union. As we looked at some of those 50-cent words, uh, the bottom line is Christ became the prime example of how to conduct ourselves on this planet, right? We talked about that, and we'll come back to that as well. But you got to take, as you read this passage, you got to go back to 127, where two things he highlights. You need to be unified, he's talking to the church, and you need to stand in boldness in the faith, 
reading between a little bit between the lines, we know that they most likely are being persecuted at some level for their faith. They're obviously concerned because their leader, Paul, is imprisoned. And we see later in, in Philippians, there seems to be false teachers that are percolating and creating dissension. And there is some dissension as well in the camp, uh, as we will see with two ladies who Paul even singles out and says, the two of them need to cool it and you need to help them to cool it. Right? And to what, what is that issue? We don't know. So let's unpack this in light of that command, because that, that is key here. And he, he states in verse 12, my dear friends, uh, it's, it's laced with affection, right? Uh, he's, he's priming the pump. <laughs> he, says, <coughs> he says in this text, work out your salvation. So in this appeal, this command to work out their salvation, it's done with great affection. It's it's going to be patterned after Christ's obedience. Remember, we're just off the hills of that great hymn, right? Where Christ emptied himself. And in verse 8, what did, what did Paul highlight in the hymn, right? He humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient. It's what he brings back here. It's the same term that we are in verse 12. He says, you've always obeyed. You've been obedient like Christ. Keep that up. So that's the hinge that ties this all together. And so Christ becomes the pattern, and it's, he directs this towards the Lord and apostolic teaching, because he says, uh, even more my absence, we're doing this for the Lord. And we're going to come back to this as we, we highlight this. But let's, let's unpack the phrase, work out our salvation. What does he mean? Now, there are two major views here, and, uh, uh, well, there's a third view, which evangelicals aren't going to take, and that is uh, a Catholic scholar might argue that this, what Paul is saying is that works are part of our salvific plan, or it's part of our salvation. It's not just faith, but it's also works. Uh, I think we can shoot that dog and bury it in the backyard, right? Uh, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2. So that, that view isn't even on the table, but there are two other views. So let's, let's look at these. The first of these is called sociological. What does that mean? If you look at the bullet point there, the first bullet point on page one of the notes, Paul is referring to the spiritual health and well-being of the entire community. In other words, working out your salvation is, could be rendered working out your well-being, your health as a community. And so scholars, some scholars are going to argue this whole section is not dealing with soteriological issues. It's dealing with communal issues. And the argument is, number one, salvation can mean simply health or well-being. And it's in the whole context of being unified. So the issue with fear and trembling, that's fear and trembling before individuals that we're not walking on pins and needles, that we're, we're together in this. I know I'm getting some, some uh, folks that aren't real pleased with that interpretation. Uh, I, I'm not either. Uh, There's some arguments that support it, and I've given those to you, but I lean towards the latter in that we're dealing with uh, a theological matter. I think it's bigger than just being unified, because it goes back to 127, that command that we talked about. And so, uh, I quote O'Brien in his commentary, the Philippians are to show forth the graces of Christ in their lives to make their, and watch this, eternal salvation. 
I think what Paul's talking about is working out your salvation is a recognition that we are to be faithful to the end. And that's the idea here. It's, it, it reminds me of Hebrews 3, right? Uh, look at Hebrews 3. Just, just, just glance at this. I wasn't planning on saying this, but uh, I think it fits with what we're dealing with here. Hebrews 3, 6 makes the statement, um, Christ is faithful, son of our God's house. We are of his house if, in fact, we hold firm to our confidence and hope that we take pride in. In other words, it's not what will be true, but what is already true. If, and we're going to see here, he's already mentioned it before, but he'll highlight even in the next verse, it's God who has worked, God who has called but we have a responsibility, and O'Brien states this. He says, to make their eternal salvation fruitful in the here and now as they fulfill their responsibilities to one another as well as to non-Christians. I don't see it sociological. I don't see that we're dealing with communal issues. I think we're talking about our relationship to the Lord and how we fulfill the salvation profession that we have made Basis for this, as you see in the notes, the term salvation is almost always used by Paul to refer to eternal salvation. Um, that, to me, is the clincher. But secondly, uh, the plurality of you, uh, and it's not that collectively we're working through this. No, it's each individual within the body is to fulfill this. And then I would argue that uh, it's a com continuation of what Christ has already done. Remember verse 11? Turn back to chapter 1. Look at this, Philippians 1.11. If you don't catch anything else from me, note this. Philippians 1.11, he says, You've been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. In other words, they've already been set apart, declared righteous before God because what God has done. I'm talking about the lives of the believers. What he's dealing with in chapter 2 is you've made that profession. You need to live that out. Keep being faithful in the midst of this. And the fear and the trembling, to me, isn't about how we interact with one another. That phrase is used always of interaction between man and God, right? Uh, think about the, the phrase. I even give you some references there. Um, we're not dealing with a human relationship. I think we're dealing with the Lord Almighty and how we engage Him. Questions on this? Because this is huge. It's going to govern how you interpret the rest of this whole passage. And, and unfortunately, I don't have the time to unpack each side. But what I want you to see is, um, I, I, I think we're it, it ties back to 127. The whole idea, of, uh, this is how we're engaging the Lord how we live out our salvation. And, and Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, you need to live that out. You need to work this out. Uh, yeah. I was, I was going back and thinking about Galatians where it says, am I now going to please them? If we're supposed to please God, you make that first, you make it sociological, then you make that first fight with Galatians. Yeah, and... and the argument from the other side will be, I'm not talking about Galatians, I'm talking about Philippians. And so we have to be careful because, and I know what you're saying, and I agree. Um, as you interpret, and by the way, this is great Bible study method. Uh, when you're studying a book of the Bible, obviously you want to take the whole counsel of God. That's very important. But don't superimpose other books right on top of it. Does this make sense? 
Uh, 1 Corinthians is not to be read like Philippians. <laughs> Paul has a huge paddle and has holes in it when he writes to the church at Corinth. He's honking mad. But Philippians, it's, it's, it's out of a... I mean, he even started this whole section, my dear friends. It's, it's out of affection. It's out of love. It's out of encouragement. In fact, when we get down to the bottom of this section, he says, I'm willing to die for you. He says, I, I'd consider that a great thing. That's an amazing statement. So I understand what you're saying, uh, Gary, and i just highlight that. Well, anyway, let's go back to the text. And notice what he says. So we're all on the same page. You all agree, and we're, no, it's okay if you disagree. Uh, there, again, some of the leading commentators, conservative evangelicals, will take this as sociological. I, I just don't see it in the greater context. So that's why I'm going down this road. The question I have in your notes as we look at this fear and trembling he says, for the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure. And the question I have in your notes, I even left some space. What are the implications from what Paul is saying here? This statement about the Lord brings forth the desire and the effort. What's our implications? What's going on here? What's Paul saying? Yeah. Okay, it's a heart issue. What else? Free will versus sovereignty of the, uh, there's a tension in Scripture between free will and sovereignty of God, if I can say that. I think there's a little mystery, and that's why you got Armenians and Calvians lobbing bombs be between each other trying to figure it out. Um, but certainly there is the sovereignty of God here, is there not? I think I can spell this. I may be wrong. Sovereignty of God is being highlighted here in this text, right? Yes? Yeah, the circumstances within the sovereignty of God, good. What else are the implications here? Look at the text. Who's bringing forth your desire and your effort? Who's the subject? God. Who, who gave you faith to believe? Who called you before the foundation of the world? You didn't, you didn't pursue God. Romans 3 says there's no one who seeks after God. I've heard people in testimonies, well, you know, I was really looking for God and I found Him. Well, no, not really. God found you. He finally rang your bell and you heard Him. But I know what you're saying. I don't want to be nasty, but uh, not according to Ephesians 1, not according to, to Romans, uh, it's God who sought. Sovereignty of God is highlighted here, Right? You wouldn't have had the desire and you wouldn't have the effort to do what you do if it wasn't apart from the Lord. Right? What's the fruit? It's not the fruit of Hophet, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Flip side, that is so comforting. I don't have to do the spiritual life on my own. If I do, I'm toast. In fact, where is uh, a couple of you guys are dealing with helping men uh, with sex addiction, right? Helping them leave that lifestyle. They're not going to do it on the, apart from the Lord working in and through them. Right? And I know there's a whole other host of issues, but it's true on every level, right? That is so freeing. Uh, Swindoll wrote a book, I think it's the best book he ever wrote. Chuck Swindoll wrote a book called Grace Awakening. It's dynamite. Now, maybe it resonated with me. I grew up in a very Love the upbringing I had, but it was, it was really strong fundamentalist. 
and, and I was more legalistic than probably anyone in the church. Um, and so the idea of grace wasn't there, and I, you know, the Christian life was all the stuff I had to do. And Grace Awakening, after reading that book, it was like a two-by-four rammed over, you know, knocked over my head. No, my spiritual life is dependent on God working in and through me. I missed that when I was growing up in, in the church, and that's my own fault. Uh, but that's, what, that's the beauty of this, isn't it? Yes? All right. Any other thoughts, comments? All right. Well, we'll move on. We're all obviously... Yeah, Rick. Well, if uh, yes, in some conservative evangelical camps, uh, the Trinity is only made up of two people, <laughs> the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit's way over here. Uh, and it, it's one of the, I think, the benefits of the charismatic movement is that we've had a better understanding and looking at the Holy Spirit in a fresh light, if I might say that. Um, Yeah, I like that. Uh, Eugene said we're Trinitarian in doctrine, deed, or uh, creed. Yes, but indeed we're, we're binitarian, which is the Father and the Son. Anyway, those are more 50-cent words. There you go. Well, let's go back to the text. It says, the one doing all this, and he says, for the sake of, that phrase uh, is referring to the goal. And what is the goal? What's the text tell us? What's the goal? His good pleasure. Piper ran with this sucker, John Piper, right? It's for the glory of God, and he, he, he ran with that sucker. And he's right. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at this. Ephesians 1. That's a glorious text. Man, if you got someone struggling with identity, struggling a little bit with depression, run them through this sucker. You know? Look who they are in Christ. He says in 1.4, For who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we may be holy and unblemished in His sight? He did this by predestining us as adoption through Jesus Christ according to what? Jesus called you, God called you via His Son because He simply delighted in doing so. Hang that one on your beak today, right? And He's not done. Because in verse 9, he says, He did this when he revealed to us the secret of his will according to his good pleasure. He repeats it twice. And several times he repeats the phrase for the praise of his glory in that section. Ephesians 1 is just dynamite. But Paul is echoing this again here in Philippians when he says, Listen, we're doing all this for his good pleasure. It's all about God. He's the one who called us. He's the one who is seeing us sanctified. He's the one who sees us ultimately glorified. And in the process, we give it all back to Him. For me to live, Paul said, is Christ. And to die is gain. Right? And John the Baptist, right? He, Christ, must increase. I must decrease. So, if I can put on the preaching hat for a moment. How are you doing in that realm? And you want a litmus test? Take an inventory of your rhetoric speech the last week. Look at your pocketbook. Look at your day timer. Right? Those are obsolete. But anyway, used to say Palm Pilot, and those are gone. But, you know, how you doing in those arenas? 
is, is the Lord ultimately being glorified? Well, back to the text. He says here, we're doing this for the sake of his good pleasure. Then he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And those who hold to a sociological aspect of this text are going to argue, well, what Paul's dealing with, again, is how we're interacting with one another. And on one level, that's true. But grumbling and, and, and complaining was used of a whole group of people back in the Hebrew Scriptures. Who were they? Israel. Israelites. Don't you remember Exodus 17? Whoa, is this group, right? Murmuring, Murmuring complaining. Uh, and this is the same phrase used in the Greek translation of that text in Exodus 17. So no, I don't think ultimately... Yes, they were grumbling and complaining against Moses, but in Exodus 17, God says, you're ultimately complaining against who? Me, right? So, yeah, I'll, I'll give this credit over here to those who hold to a sociological issue that, that Paul's saying to the church, don't grumble and complain against one another. But ultimately, as a believer, when we grumble and complain, I will argue it's a form of idolatry. Because we are placing ourselves above the Lord. You know, uh, we become the judge. We become the one who's discontent with what God has given. And often it leads to disobedience. And, and I think that's what Paul is saying here. He says, be very careful where God has placed you. And, and, and when we engage one another, the unity within the body is so important. Uh, Questions or comments on this? Yes, Rock. I understand uh, the significance of grumbling and complaining in a, in a you know, very broad sense. But we are, in fact, human. When someone steps on my foot in the grocery store, I'm going to grumble and complain. <laughs> Rock said, well, if someone steps on my foot, I'm going to grumble and complain. I think it's... It's a little different, isn't it, in this text? Uh, let me get somebody who hasn't made a comment. It would, uh, how do you distinguish what's going on here? Uh, yeah, uh, well, a human reaction is also one to grumble, complain about your leader, etc. Um, Well, we are to turn the other cheek for those who persecute, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there, isn't, there is a place for righteous anger uh, as well within the body, you know, uh, within the church. Uh, in fact, Paul says to be angry and sin not. We need to be angry, but it needs to be done, and there's parameters for that in the text. The context here, though, is engaging one another for the cause of Christ. And Odie and Stinky, these two ladies down the road, are going to demonstrate what it means to grumble and complain. And, and what ex exactly is going on there, we don't know. But Paul's saying, in everything without grumbling and arguing, so that, notice, this is the why, so that you may be blameless and pure. He gives two reasons, by the way. Uh, that you, first of all, that you're blameless and pure, which is key here in verse 15. <clears throat> uh, he says, you, you live in a world that is perverse. Why would you want to act like them, right? You're to be light. 
Martin, in his commentary on, in Philippians, writes this. It's in your notes. It's in the midst of the world is our proper place as the Lord's people. For it is only here that true Christians, whereas can be born and influenced for Christ effectively exerted. We are in the world. Uh, we're not to be of it, but we are in it. And we're to be the salt and the light. And the whole concept of light, uh, well, go to Ephesians 5. Look at Ephesians 5. This is not something new in Paul's rhetoric to the church. He says, therefore, verse 7, do not be partakers with them. He's talking about the things of the, the world. For you were at one time darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of the light, right? <clears throat> this is a Jewish concept. Uh, I could show you some documents from the Dead Sea Scrolls that talked about God's people are to be light. We are the children, not of darkness, but of light. First um, <clears throat> Thessalonians 5, I give you other text. So he says, number one, you're grumbling and complaining. Don't do it because we're to be blameless. So implication, if you grumble and complain, you're not blameless. And you forfeit the light. And you and I, we all know, right, groups of believers where there's been dissension and church splits, it's a horrible testimony. And those standing on the outside said, why would I want to join your group? You're no different than us. And and that's one of the things Paul's trying to to bring home. But then notice what he says in verse 16. Not only do you, by not grumbling and complaining, you're holding fast to the gospel so that on the day of Christ, this is the day of appearing, right? I will have a reason. Probably he's referring to, by the way, the, the Bema seat where all believers will appear. 2 Corinthians 5, <clears throat> where we'll account for our good deeds, uh, which might be few if we're not walking with the Lord, we should. It says, I will have a reason to boast. So the second part of why they need to do this is that they will exonerate their leader, Paul. Right? You say, well, that seems a little self-serving for Paul. But, but what he, he, he wants to boast of, the, of what he's invested in them. And, and they will serve as a testimony that Paul's ministry was effective. But by them grumbling and complaining, they only, not only create dissension, they tarnish the work of the Lord. And that's a problem. I, w- I was thinking about this text last night. In a sense, we are indebted to those who've gone before us, aren't we? That's what Paul's saying, ultimately. I mean, think about those who led you to the Lord, those who discipled you. Uh, I'm going to put Dan Cummins on the spot. Dan was uh, one of my youth leaders growing up. Dan was fantastic, other than the day that he had us eat uh, caramel-covered onions. We won't go there. (laughs) Dan will tell you the story. He was really cruel. I still have scars from that. But we're indebted to those who poured their lives into ours, right? Uh, and Paul says, listen, you need to finish well because I've got a lot at stake. I've invested much. It's an interesting twist. In fact, not only does he wish that they finish well, he wants the same for himself because he says, uh, I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. The, the imagery of these two terms are sig- very significant. Run is used of athletes, which Paul loves that term. 
He's very well aware of the Olympic. I think, I think that's why there were several different types of Olympic games in the first century in the Roman Empire. I think that's why he spent 18 months at Corinth making tents because it was all those who were there for the, the games, the Corinthian, this being games uh, there. And so he was doing that for all the spectators, those coming into town for the athletic events. So running is on the forefront of his mind and, and, and finishing for the prize. But he also says that I don't labor. That term was used often of weavers. And there's also a prize for them as well in the midst of the hard labor. And I can't help but think, you know, Lydia selling purple. Uh, there was probably a lot of weavers at Philippi. But nonetheless, he uses two terms that are very commonly known in that world to describe <clears throat> the Christian life. And then on page three, you can see that. So he says his desire is that they finish well. You can't do that if you're grumbling and complaining. In other words... <clears throat> We need an eschatological perspective, don't we? Um, and that's what Paul's calling for. Paul's ethics are driven by his eschatology. I've used this before, but I can still remember my mom saying, you don't want to be doing that when the Lord comes back, right? That's what Paul's saying. P pull it together. Get together. This is ridiculous, right? But then he says... And this is so profound, and we skip over it frequently. He says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering. What is he talking about? <clears throat> this phrase comes from the Old Testament, I believe. There are some who don't argue that. I, I think they're wrong. The, that which was poured out was placed over the burnt offering or beside it. It's what followed. It, it made it sweet. It made it acceptable. It was the final step of the sacrifice that was given. What is Paul saying? Look what the text says. I love how the Net Bible renders this. He said, I am that drink offering on the sacrifice and service of whom? Them. He said, what you're doing, if I give up my life, it would be, it would be like a drink offering. It would be the final icing on the cake, so to speak, of what you have done for the cause of Christ. And he says, and I'd be happy to do it. Did you see the text? He says, I, I am glad and I rejoice together with you. If this should happen, yay. What an honor. Uh, yeah, it's kind of that, there is that idea. And he says in verse 18, and by the way, he said, not only should I be glad and rejoice, you should as well. And there's a key phrase in there in, in both verses, and that is the word together. Joy, togetherness are woven together throughout Philippians. And we're going to see it several times. Question on this passage? It's huge. Paul's poured his life into this group, and he says, I'm willing to die. In fact, if I did, it would, it would just be the kind of the pouring the oil over what you've already and, already, and, and what you are doing for the cause of Christ, right? Your sacrifice and service and by the way, the term for service there is the term used for priests. They have been in worship of God through their faith. And he says, if, if I die on this hill, it's, it's worth every penny. Right? Howard Hendricks used to say, an effective ministry has a very high price tag, but it's worth every penny. 
And Paul says, you are my crown and joy, and what a day it'll be when I can stand before the Lord and say, look at this group, how they have been faithful. And if I die in the process here, so be it. In fact, it would be glorious if I could for you. That's an amazing statement from Paul nestled in here. And again, who's our ultimate model? Not Paul, Christ, right? And, and we're not done because next week we're going to look at Timothy, little Timothy, and we're going to look at Epaphroditus, Gesundheit, right? He's going to look at these two individuals as also examples of what it means to, to serve and to be faithful and to walk humbly before God. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there's a social, I'm not denying there isn't a sociological element, but I think what's the major thrust is, is soteriological, and it spills over. It always does. Um, it's, and I'm not saying this with this group, because, but the problem often with preaching social justice, and there's a place for that, is that it comes before the gospel, right. and the gospel needs to drive Anyway, I'm starting now. I'm really meddling, so we'll move on. Intersect. <clears throat> Let me go through this uh, as we, we look at this and wrapping this up. Number one, I wrote the victorious li Christian life. I didn't need to tell you this this morning. You said, "Man, I got up at seven to hear this." You got to be kidding. But it takes time and effort. <clears throat> the gospel was never meant to serve simply as fire insurance, right? If you know Jesus as your Savior, there better be a change. There better be progress. Piper makes this statement, and uh, well, I encourage you to read. Well, we're going to read it. It's the bottom of page four. He says, There is a kind of cavalier attitude towards our security today. There is little trembling, little vigilance, and earnestness and caution and watchfulness over our souls. There is a kind of casual, slack, careless attitude towards the possibility that we might make shipwreck of our faith and fail to lay hold of our eternal life. That's what Paul is saying. Work out your salvation. Careful. All right? Don't do this. So, the victorious Christian life, it takes time. Secondly, it's never meant to be lived in isolation. The gospel is communal. It draws us into the family of God. And it has an effect, and, and, and we need to be careful that. Galatians 6 talks about this. You can read that text. Um, and uh, I know I've talked to a couple of you. Find me a believer who's not engaged with other people, and we got a problem, most likely. Satan loves secrecy. He loves the darkness. But when we're bearing one another burdens, which is in the context of confessing sin... There's a whole different equation that goes into play, and it, it diffuses Satan's hold on a life. So anyway, third, <clears throat> the victorious Christian life recognizes one's dependence on the Lord. I wrote, the gospel only demonstrates our need for divine assistance, right? That's what we just said over here. It's the one who gave you the desire, and it's the one who has given you the effort. It's God, right? What, it's a great text. And as Paul is, is wrapping up this 
edict of, of walking worthy of the gospel, he, he's gone through the life of Christ. He comes to this section and he says, man, work out your salvation. Uh, you must be on the offensive or you will not win this battle. And we must be tapped into the things of the Lord, right? The spirit, we can't do it on our own. That's the good news. It's also a reminder. Father, we come to your word and we just thank you. <clears throat> thank you, number one, that you've called us. And I'm assuming everyone here is a believer. If they haven't placed their faith in you, I, I pray the day that they would yield to, to you. But Lord, you just didn't leave us hanging and said, well, I'll see you in 70 years or whatever. You've given us the Spirit who is interceding and, and engaging and giving us the power to live this spiritual life. You also have your Son who's right now interceding on our behalf. And Lord, you are giving us not only the desire and the effort, but you're doing that all for your pleasure. And we marvel. Lord, help us to work out our salvation. Help us to guard our hearts, to walk in humility as we looked last week of the life of Christ. And as Paul reminds us again, don't do it with grumbling and complaining. Submit, and may we see those around us through your eyes. Help us to be victorious Christians who, when that day comes, we will hear the words, well done, God good and faithful servant. We thank you, we praise you in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus. Amen.